It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, journalist and author Tara Murtha. Why, why do you think she quit? Some people think that she, in retrospect, they believe that she always planned it that way. She did have her child in 79. Vegas sort of changing, having a kid. Honestly, I, I think that she, I think she took a break to, to re-examine and then concluded, maybe to her own surprise, that, that it made more sense to, um, to just bow out, you know? And she saw that, I mean, why would you? Why would you want to be famous today, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like a horror show. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Leave comments for us there or email us at fun to know podcast, always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a review over at our page at iTunes. On today's show, award-winning journalist and author Tara Murtha. Murtha began to make waves with her writing in the early 2000s, focusing both on issues of social justice and writing about pop culture for the Philadelphia Weekly. Her coverage of abortion doctor Kermit Gosnell garnered attention and more accolades beginning in 2011, and she has worked for the Gun Crisis Project, RH Reality Check, and the Woman's Law Project. We talk about her experiences in journalism later in the interview. The opening subject at hand is Bertha's first book, a volume in the 33 and a third series inspired by the 1967 Capitol Records LP, Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe. The record was the debut of the 23-year-old singer-songwriter, and its title track reveals the mystery of a young man's death, cryptically discussed over the evening's meal. There has been decades of conjecture over what Billy Joe and the song's narrator threw off that bridge, but over time another mystery has emerged as popular entertainer Gentry has disappeared from the stage with no public appearances in over 30 years now. Mirtha examines Gentry's mysteries and career throughout her sharp and concise book, and we'll learn a little about what she found out, as well as talking about Zelda Fitzgerald, female identity, letting Bjork be Bjork, and we'll also hear a bit from Mirtha's favorite Gentry tunes. After we finish geeking out on the music end, we lead into a discussion about Mirtha's experiences in the world of modern journalism, of the journo bro, as well as Tara's role in bringing light to the crimes of Kermit Gosnell. To me, I sound almost over-relaxed in parts here. I think in part because of the conversation happened in Miss Murtha's old high-rise Philly office as the late afternoon sun dimmed and the workday ended around us. Let's hear some of that classic gentry melody, then we'll head into our conversation.
here with Tara Murtha, journalist with many accolades, also teaching these days at Temple. Is that true? Occasional adjunct at Temple University Yeah. in the and, journalism department. And I believe this is your first book, right? This is. You've yeah. written one in the 33 and a third series, uh, seen in uh, bookstores and record stores all over, uh, that is uh, based upon the uh, debut record from Bobby Gentry. Ode to Billy Joe, and it's sort of a jumping off point into feminine identity in, in the music industry and beyond, and uh, I'm glad to be here uh, talking with you. Thanks for having uh, me. Sure. So uh, can you tell us uh, where, where you uh, first discovered Bobby Gentry in this record? Uh, my now husband, uh, I think it was when we were dating, so it would have been a while ago, turned me on to the record when we were in the like dating, exchanging records, being cooler than each other. Uh, phase and he was like, well, obviously you're a fan of Bobby Gentry, given you know what I was, what he knew that I was into. What, um, were, what were you into? Well, I, I mean, in in terms of being into like Loretta and Dolly and things like that, but I kind of like all that stuff. And then really, you know, like '90s girl rock, you know, and PJ Harvey, and yeah, I mean, all sorts of things. But I think just in that, that was the the my predilection that led him to believe that I'd be into Bobby Gentry, and um, I didn't, I. Guess I had heard Ode to Billy Joe, but it didn't strike a strong memory for me. You know, I didn't um, immediately know what he was talking about, and I went and Googled her and came across videos and was like, "Oh my God!" Um, then I pretty quickly, you know, any any mini bio on online about Bobby Gentry sort of cuts right into the fact that she hasn't appeared in public in 30 years and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I just kind of went down the rabbit hole of about this beautiful starlet who disappeared. Um, and hasn't appeared in public again. So so that's where it started, just sort of fascination, and um, that's, I just kind of kept going <laughs> and going and going. It so. seems like you met some, some interesting characters along the way who had, who had worked with her. Um, they really set the scene for what, uh, you know, the sort of the Hollywood Capitol Records music studio world was like. Yeah, the story was actually much... Luckily, it was much richer than I even anticipated when I first wrote the proposal for 33 and a third. You know, I mean, I knew that it was cool. I knew I'd look at the album. Each each um, each book looks at one album, though people have had different approaches. Um, you know, I, and I looked at it as so I guess the framing was the same. I wanted to do an investigative pop history of the making of the record. Because um, once I got a little deeper into looking at how she, you know, what she did before leaving the spotlight in the early 80s, uh, an interview that's now oft quoted in um, After Dark, which is a, uh, a gay gentleman's magazine uh, based in Vegas in the 70s. And in that interview, she was challenged as a feminist because she, you know, wears fake eyelashes and does the whole thing. And she said in response, and I believe this is the first time she said so, um, well, actually, why would I not be a feminist? I, you know, if, if you don't know, I actually produced Ode to Billy Joe and brought it to Capitol, which is contrary to everything else on record. And it's definitely contrary to the press releases that I dug up at the time and things like that. The, everything was that, like, this pretty girl with a guitar walked in and recorded it, you know. Um, so that was the thread that I started tugging on to, to kind of frame the whole thing. Yeah, but she, she was really kind of the complete package of a, of a musical artist. You know, she was a writer. She was an incredible performer. She mm-hmm. was you know, a businesswoman. She really, uh, uh, she was made to dominate the record industry in a way that I'm not sure it was quite capable for a, a, a woman at that time. And for really anyone, there's an article in Billboard uh, from late 1967 that actually uses Ode to Billy Joe, the record, 
as a, um, and it's it, how quickly it was produced as an example to talk about the power of the music industry and the power of labels and particularly the power of capital because they had, uh, they, they released the album five weeks after releasing the single because they didn't want to waste any time once the single went stratospheric and normally the lead time is three months to record and get the marketing together and but they just rushed it so so they were just happened to I got a lot of information about the capital guys um, and about the the manufacturing of the record that I normally would not be able to get because it happened to be used as an example of the power of Capitol Records yeah. at the time and Brown Meggs um, the artistic director the one of the departments at Capitol said she was a rare artist, not, he didn't even mention gender, he just said uh, it's like a once-in-a-lifetime artist or something like that, that came fully formed yeah. as a polished, like you said, performer. Um, when she first met them, she had already written dozens of songs, you know, when she was an unknown. Um, and he said, it's very rare, you know, that you come across somebody that you didn't have to develop, you know, she just... Yeah, she had, I mean, she had a pretty interesting sort of self-creation with her. She was... Uh, uh, I was very curious as I read the book more about her mother, who uh, mm-hmm. uh, she had a musical act with for a while, and seemed to be somewhat in there to to, to mold her into who she became. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a it's pretty interesting mother daughter stuff. I mean, that's one of the big themes in Ode to Billy Joe. You know, the mother and the father, um, but the you know the mother not connecting to the daughter's grief, and then. The father dies, and by the end of the song, the daughter doesn't connect with the mother's grief either. You know, mm-hmm. so sort of that that exploration of intimacy and southern customs, um, things like supper time that's supposed to keep society together, um, but actually just drives individual people apart and be wielded as a weapon. Yeah, she got she got uh, pegged as a as a you know a typical southern belle or whatever. But I mean, her whole story was sort of a creation. She, she left the South at a, at a fairly early age, I think. Yeah, um, she always said 13, that she left the South at 13. I don't see it as a creation as much as artistic license of like illuminating one facet for that song. Yeah. I mean, then when she performed Fancy a couple years later, she always wore the red outfit, you know, the long red dress, and she designed all her costumes. So. It's like the unnamed narrator in Ode to Billy Joe was one character, and that happened to be a powerful character, I think, made, uh-huh. made more powerful because, um, because she, it, it, she inhabits the song, and they cut out the first stanza that actually named the girl, originally oh, was yes. named Sally Jane Ellison. Um, but somewhere between her writing the original lyrics out and recording the song, or at least the version that was released, that was cut out. So, you know, with female artists. There was just a panel um, online last week with Lena Dunham and uh, the woman who produces Weeds, um, you know, talking about how female female artists, what they produce, it's always assumed to be from the heart and not an artistic creation. That it's autobiographical. That's it's autobiographical. It's confessional. Yeah. yeah, that there's not those layers of persona and character of the song. So, so yeah, I don't see it as fake. I see it as sort of strategically illuminating that one persona that is what she was exploring at the time artistically yeah. and then she kind of got hemmed into that a little bit I think. Ode to Billy Joe really has a, a whole flavor that, that sort of uh, lends itself to sort of the the gothic writers uh, mm-hmm. and uh, what does that song mean to you? How do you how do you take apart that song? You know I guess by the time I was really listening to it I was already aware of sort of the bigger story and her as a person you know so I can't it's hard for me to think about what I 
I don't think I had the space to think about and make my own conjecture about what was thrown off the bridge, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she wrote it very purposefully thinking that people were going to think that it was a baby or fetus or something controversial to get mm-hmm. to get them to talk about it, you know? I don't think it was... It was treated like it was an accident. Like, you know, I mean, a lot of her success was treated in the press by, specifically by male writers, really, um, like a big accident. You know, she was kind of portrayed as like the sexy hillbilly girl who stumbled into to the glamorous life. You know, and now um, it's kind of funny. The term "rattled" was used, rattled around her thirty-room Spanish mansion. You know, because she wasn't married, um, and she was in her you know mid late twenties and then early thirties. But uh, so I don't. So I think that she wrote it being fully aware of what a MacGuffin is, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so that's the term most often used talking about Hitchcock films. Oh, I don't know. think he made it up. But he he popularized it. Yeah, yeah. In in film, it's it's something that's really central to the plot in terms of driving all the action forward. But when all is revealed, it's actually incidental to to the plot. So yeah. the classic examples are you know Rosebud in Citizen Kane. The Golden Suitcase in Pulp Fiction, yeah. you know, and I think that that's that's what that is. Um, but it's really interesting because there's the loop where there's two mysteries. You know, the concrete one is what was the girl and Billy Joe throwing off the bridge? It's implied they threw something off the mm-hmm. bridge. Or Brother Taylor says, you know, that someone gossip. that looked a lot like her <laughs> up on the bridge, and then why Billy Joe jumped. So. Um, so the second, the latter is like an existential question. So fans set about debating the concrete one, looking for the answer to the more existential question. And I, that, that was what informed my thinking of, okay, I'm going to try to find out the concrete answer to the production of the album to try to help answer the existential one of, of why she stepped out of the spotlight. Yeah, yeah. So I remember years ago. Double I, parallel, see. <laughs> <laughs> I remember years ago seeing uh, Jim Stafford on a on a talk show. It might have been Merv Griffin, mm-hmm. and he he was married to Bobby Gentry at the time, and he said, "You know, I'm married to her, and she won't even tell me what was thrown off the bridge." Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't see that clip. I saw he was on a show, some talk show, years later, and he mentioned her, which was rare, and mentioned their son which was really rare, and I think he even like pulled out a photo of, of the kid. Hmm. So, yeah, because normally the kid was not, was not discussed, you yeah. know. Yeah, but they, they weren't together very long at all, so they were only together about a year or so, mm-hmm. is my understanding. Spiders and Snakes, though, that's a good song. Big song. Big yeah. Song. My, my Girl Bill. <laughs> it's right for cover, I feel like, yeah, it, you know. <laughs> spiders, some sort of American noir, Spiders and Snakes, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> She ended up going to Vegas. That was a place where it seemed like she found a creative freedom to sort of create her own act. I think so. I mean, I think that Vegas enabled her to extend what she was doing on records, but kind of chiseling away at that problem of everyone thinking that every character you're artistically expressing must be you, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, she was she left her last record was Patchwork in 71, so she really has only had a four-year recording career. Wow. Um, before she and she simultaneously started Vegas she actually had a a run in Vegas before being famous which I talk about in the book but Mm -hmm. when she was established as Bobby Gendry and went to Vegas she methodically worked up 
through the rooms, you know, to the mm -hmm. bigger rooms, the bigger contracts, to prepare to, to leave and switch over. So I think she was able to, like, play out the characters, you know. I mean, she would design the costumes, and you know, she was like a theater geek, um, and play all the parts, um, you know, and that way. I also, I also kind of think of a little note of a Zelda Fitzgerald thing, you know, where... You know, Zelda went off, and I know everyone romanticizes Zelda, and that's corny and everything, but the parallel being that I think Zelda also didn't get credit for some of her writing work, um, mm -hmm. and she went about uh, a way less practical thing than Vegas and became, started to study ballet, like, you know, way, way, way after, <laughs> after the point <laughs> you're supposed to do that. Um, because if you think about it, with dance and performance, you're like, it's, there's your body, it's you doing it, you know? Um, Something I didn't know when I wrote the book uh, was that she basically co-directed her BBC show as well. I, I interviewed the director of the BBC series after after the book went to press, and he told me straight out that she was basically she was a co-director, but um, she also didn't get credit there. So yeah. you're the first woman to host a show on the BBC, and you don't get credit, you know, for what, what was that show like. What was it like? Yeah. Um, it was her hosting, and it would open up, and she would introduce, she helped curate the guests. Um, they had, you know, really baby, baby James Taylor, you know, mm -hmm. Donovan, um, so guests like that. There's about, there were about, I think there were 18 episodes uh, filmed, and about six survived. The other ones were taped over. Mm. Um, it had sort of, sort of a country theme. I'm always fascinated how, how people in the UK like love the American South stuff, yeah. you know, but, but like slick, you know, not, mm -hmm. um, you know, it wasn't like a hayseed thing. And she would talk to the audience and then sort of slip into her, her songs. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's surprising that people would, would find the song sort of autobiographical because they are so writerly, you know, they're, they're not a, mm -hmm. they're not just you know, direct from a narrator, kind of straight from the heart kind of thing. They're, they're, they're filled with... They're the, well-crafted. Really well-crafted. I mean, yeah. Ode to Billy Joe, I, I, I was smitten with that song since I was a, a young kid and sort of a, you know... I, oh, what was your first... Do you, do you have one of those flashbulb memories about the first time you heard it? A lot of people do. It's, it's a song I almost always remember knowing, but it was a song that I, I remember that was, uh, was mauled over a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... Uh, I, I, somehow, I don't think I, I think I missed the memory of the thing being uh, thrown off the bridge. I think it was more about you know, what was the relationship between Billy Joe and her that sort right. of kept me right. so captivated. But even just the that the it's a production wise, it's, it's so spare. And mm -hmm. there's you know, I'm particularly drawn to those sort of you mm -hmm. know spare spare records. So it, it has a real haunting quality to it. Yeah, and what's what's interesting is in the context of the album, that's actually not her go-to aesthetic that's actually an exception to her she was like a kitchen sink like she did not meet an instrument that she did not like to put on her <laughs> records um you know she really liked highly crafted layers you I think know the contrapolitan sound at the time a little bit yeah except she wasn't out of nashville of course but like you know even her 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 visual aesthetic um was just she liked a lot of things going on high quality but sequins and smoke and you know mm -hmm. she was really elaborate so it's it's really funny to think that Mississippi Delta is the song that got her in the door at Capitol and that's the the sonic opposite of Ode to Billy Joe I mean that's full-on horns it's the Hendrix riff you know mm -hmm. all that stuff she's even singing totally different she's doing like the Aretha <laughs> thing um, so when you listen to her entire catalog Ode to Billy Joe is is truly an exception and that's what mm -hmm. she's 
best known for. Yeah. <laughs> it's the least typical of her um, of her catalog. You find some uh, some interesting angles I I, I wasn't aware of. Uh, you uh, talk about her her drag impersonation of Elvis. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. So there's this whole you know that's the holy grail of gentry fans to you know talk about this performance and uh you know i find i did get to see it in the course of researching the book but i had heard about it for years you know and, and it was that that she did you know a tribute not quite a bit of an impersonation but she didn't like wear the exact elvis costume she wore this really tight-fitting white sequin suit most of the time when she did it but she wore a silk neckerchief that she tossed out into the crowd and um, really got his mannerisms down like a hundred percent, you know, and so the legend is, is that she did this. It, it, it's a medley, an Elvis medley, you know, Jailhouse Rock and things like that. And everyone talked about it uh, for years. And then when, so when I finally got to see it, I was sort of blown away, you know. And she's full on does the, the snarl. She did an adaptation of it on her short-lived CBS show which she recorded four shows for the happiness hour the happiness hour yeah. yeah and on that one she even like pulls her hair back and has a spit curl and is looking very lesbian delicious um <laughs> i have to say but she was really transgressive with gender you know which is why it's um y you know she definitely consciously was performing femininity when she hyper femininity at yeah. times you know but um but also also did that and had uh, also did an andrew sisters performance in the same era where two of her male dancers also wore the little 1940s military um, nurse's uniform. Sure, sure. You know, and kept their legs hairy. And the choreography told me it was always a really funny moment when, because they were very, you know, thin, thin dancers, uh, feminine, you know, feminine yeah. men. And um, and when they came out to do that, the audience would kind of like gasp, you know, and be like, oh, <laughs> you know, once they kind of realized it wasn't, backup dancers but uh, wow. but anyway so Elvis apparently you know the legend has it that um, he heard about the tribute and wanted to check it out for himself and see if he was being made fun of or what you know uh -huh. and he checked it out and then went backstage and they became really good friends at the very least no one knows <laughs> what actually went on and um, it seemed like a natural couple I mean, I mean come on she's almost a female Elvis in some way yeah, yeah. Rick Hall Rick Hall is called, who produced um, the Fancy album he, he says he calls her the female Elvis yeah and you know both from Mississippi and both sort of reinvented their genre respective genres and I mean you know seems like a natural <laughs> but but uh she was in a she was they were very good friends and she was in a small circle of people that used to go hang out at the hilton you know at his his hotel in vegas yeah. after shows yeah and um i've read about and heard interviews with tom jones about it being elvis bobby and tom jones just hanging out at the hilton playing gospel music till dawn as you do wow. you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so those are the holy. If there's any tapes of that, I suppose that's the Holy Grail yeah. tapes. There's super fans theorize that her song "Your Number One Fan" is about Elvis, uh -huh. and she's never spoken about him. You know, she never betrayed all that stuff. You know, she never. She's hardly spoken. It almost seems. Uh, I mean, I guess yeah. she was she was interviewed in, in a whirlwind, sort of in that early uh, period. But um, she kept everything pretty close to the vest. It seemed like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she. She did her publicity, and she did her publicity really well, you know. Um, but she didn't, she even at one point said 
commented on sort of the increasing paparazzi vibe and saying like uh, she's the example why would I why would I want someone in my house watching me scramble eggs like you know um, so she always had a pretty clear distinction between her publicity and having a private life mm-hmm. um, she even had married a um, in those before she left and retired um, um, she married a private citizen you know a cop Mm-hmm. Who I hear was very <laughs> handsome, <laughs> extremely, and uh, yeah. So you know, she was she always kind of drew that line. In fact, she's one of the first. Um, I don't know my celebrity suing paparazzi history timeline exactly, but one of the first who sued um, a magazine for for putting her and Elvis on the cover. There was tons of rumors that they were he was cheating on Linda with Bobby, mm-hmm. and these gossip columns are like Elvis says. Linda's his true love, Bobby's just a friend, you know, <laughs> and tons of magazine covers. Um, I think it's, I think it was the magazine called Movie Star that chopped up a photo of her to make her look pregnant. And this is a very slender woman to make her look very pregnant, like on the way to the hospital <laughs> pregnant, <laughs> and then juxtaposed her with like a, you know, very drunk looking Elvis Presley and saying that she was having his baby and... <laughs> That she sued and shut that down. Yeah. The last record she made was she wrote all the songs on. I think right. Yeah. She that seemed to be a more personal. Or maybe her well, stretching out a little bit against, you know, what she'd done before. She wrote all the songs on Ode, except for Nikki Hokey. Yeah. Yeah, so from the beginning, she wrote, you know, she was a writer. She wanted to be a writer over being a performer. Um, she wanted Lou Rawls to record Ode to Billy Joe. Great vocalist. When she he, went to... <laughs> he would do a great version. When she went to Capitol, and um, she sang on her own demo because she couldn't, you know, afford to, to hire a professional is, is the, the story. And uh, then she wound up performing because they wanted her to perform, you know, the, the Kelly Gordon, the producer at Capitol, um, you know, once they got a load of her, they're like, you sound great, you look great, you're a performer anyway. Um, so she so she took her opportunity that she had been, she had been looking for a break, she wasn't going to give it up, you know, mm-hmm. to not... Uh, not perform, but yeah, she was fundamentally a writer. But Patchwork, her last album on Capitol, she got full producer credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're different. But actually, Patchwork is, I'd say, less personal. Except the last song. The last song is is pretty nakedly autobiographical, and it's you know I see it as a pretty pretty transparent goodbye song. I mean, it's called Looking In, and she says she's packing up and checking out, and LA's on the other line, and there's a pack of papers to sign, and you know. Um, but otherwise, it's it's much more um, it's back to the musical theater geek stuff, writing yeah. about characters, yeah, mm-hmm. with interludes and everything. The way like hip hop albums in the '90s all, all had those skits in between. It's like almost <laughs> like that, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, it seems like the major project that sort of she found her name attached to and it was part of it in the in the '70s is the the film mm-hmm. Ode to Billy Joe, which you know was. Uh, Going to tell all of the terrible secret of oh uh, yeah, but yeah. The song didn't tell you. The movie will. Yeah. Um, have you seen the film? I have. Yeah. I haven't seen it since it ran on HBO uh, back in the eighties with the. Oh okay. Yeah, yeah. Robbie Benson and mm-hmm. uh, Glennis Connor. O'Connor, yeah. O'Connor, yeah. Uh, they're both in Jeremy O'Connor. together. I think another. Mm-hmm. Right. Robbie Benson. Good memory. Uh, Benson, uh, 
<laughs> I haven't seen Jeremy. Oh, Jeremy's good. Okay. Really, it was very unusual. It's a, it's a, a film that sort of took uh, this like 15-year-old kid having sex for the first time very seriously. And, oh, uh, okay. Uh, it, was, it was a provocative film. Um, but with, with uh, Ode to Billy Joe, uh, it, it, it was a shock when uh, the, the reveal was the... That I, I almost feel like I'm telling a spoiler by, by mentioning. I know, it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but that it was a, a it's presented at the time. It was presented as a, a homosexual liaison mm-hmm. that Billy Joe had. But but going back over it now, it seems like a, it seems more like a homosexual rape. Yeah, I, I struggle with that um, yeah. for sure. Well, so it's out on DVD now. I think it, was, it just came out like during the course of my reporting. It hadn't been available to see. I think see. it's out in my Warner Archive series, which is like on demand. But oh, you okay. Can, yeah. Well, I, I interviewed the director and the screenwriter, and, and part of the problem was that they couldn't they couldn't get in touch with Bobby Gentry to get the approval. To oh, out. really? So that's, that's the big mystery of why it wasn't available for a while. <laughs> Logistics, you know. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, I... I had a really hard time with that because I report on sexual violence in my reporter life, you know, write about that. Um, when I teach and, and uh, focus on trauma journalism, I, I write things about um, representations of sexual violence in media. So I'm particularly sensitive to, to context and clues and you know, all that stuff. And the film is very, um, it doesn't show the deed. You know, it cuts from, uh, there's a party, there's a, a jubilee. And it's really, the film is really fun when you know her catalog because all these little references to her, the rest of her songs and characters comes up. Mm-hmm. Like her ragdoll is named Benjamin, which is a song on patchwork, you know, it's pretty fun. But, um, but yeah, so there's this jubilee and the main character who is the Bobby Gentry character, she's named Bobby Lee, or at least she's the Ode to Billy Joe character, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the boy, Billy Joe, like one another. So in the, while the song keeps their relationship super ambiguous in the movie, it's clear they're attracted to one another, he's pursuing her, you know. And they're looking forward to the Jubilee because they can at least dance, whatever, get together. And then he gets drunk and all the boys, they cart in prostitutes from across the Yazoo and um, the boys and the men, well, the men, they show going in kind of one by one into the stalls to be with the, the prostitutes. And then they show Billy Joe going in and being led by an older guy, you know, and then they show him locking eyes with a young girl. Um, and then it kind of cuts and there's not, it doesn't really show any, you know, it doesn't show what happens. Mm-hmm. And then um, when he, then he disappears into the woods for a couple days and she pursues him to find out what's wrong and nobody's heard from him and then he comes out and confesses that he's been with a man and he can't um he can't uh deal with that do you remember the words that he uses or Um, describes it yeah i mean i have it i have it here he i mean it's he says he says um luckily i have a copy right here and i talk about the actual it was something really bad bobby lee um so they, he asks her to meet him at the bridge. You know, here it's all going down on the bridge. And then he says, uh, you know, and she keeps saying, maybe I shouldn't know what happened. Um, and then finally he reveals his secret, and he says, it ain't, it ain't all right. I ain't all right. I've, I've been with a man, did you hear me? Which is a sin against nature, a sin against God. I don't know how I could have done it, I swear. I don't know how I could be wanting you and do that. And then she's confused if he's gay or you know what he's saying, and says she always thought men like that, which is the title of a great essay um, 
a scholar in London wrote that I that I quote uh, were easy to see, and he says, "Well, you're wrong," you know. And then by the next morning, he jumps off the bridge. So I was so glad that I got to interview Max Bayer Jr., the director, and Herman Rauscher, the screenwriter, um, because it by my lights, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's an it's an older man, much older man, uh, an authority figure in town. It's his boss, you know. It's Roscoe P. Coltrane. The actor James Best. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it's a typical sort of grooming action where exactly. you get a boy aroused by something else, and then and and getting drunk. And they weren't. Um, he was drinking beer, but they had spiked the beer with moonshine, so he got so he was dosed basically and got yeah. drunker. Then and it's the I think it was the the would be assailant son that wound keeps they keep showing him handing him beer. So yeah, it's completely grooming, um, but. You know, I mean, it's two things can be true by our lights that is sexual assault. But what I can say is that the intention of the director and the writer, that was the first, furthest thing from their minds. They were like, no, 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 no that's not, it didn't mean, Somebody they were surprised. Somebody Max, Max Baer, he was surprised to hear that reading of it? Or yeah, something? yeah, that, really? that wasn't the intention at all um, from their point of view at the time. So It, it almost sounds like they were recalling or, or, you know, recalling a story they heard of how such a thing happened and... You know, at that time, weren't even realizing it as sexual assault. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think it's it's interesting to acknowledge that they the, did not acknowledge it as such at the time and did not have that conscious intention. Though, if that went down the way it it seems to have gone down in the film, without showing any more than we know, it would be sexual assault today. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've read some some reads of that, other reads of that online. But not as much as I would anticipate. To me, it was super clear, you know. So I turned to the novelization of the film that was written by Herman to see if there was any clarification there. And there really wasn't. He uh, alludes to the scene. Who who wrote the novelization? Say Herman, same say. It was as was the the day you wrote the screenplay and then the novelization. He wrote the summer forty two. He did, yeah. Yeah. That's why they hired him because um, similar tone there. Liked summer forty two, yeah. And Max had tried to write the screenplay himself and said he just kind of wrote himself in circles and saw Summer of 42 on, on cable and got Herman on board, um, who was totally not interested. On, he didn't have any investment in the song, so it wasn't some profound commentary from Herman, you know. It's a job for him. It was just a job, yeah. He, he actually, you know, he said, give me an, an enormous amount of money and I'll do it, you know, and they did. <laughs> so... Um, and, you know, Herman told me that it was his decision to put in the gay content, that he had, he was interested in transgressive topics. Uh-huh. Summer of 42 has a, a big age difference. It's a young boy with an older woman. Um, and that he had it rattling around his mind that he wanted to work on something with gay, you know, gay content or characters next. Still, and, still very rare, you know? I think, in the mid-70s. It was, yeah, which yeah. is the transgressive part of it, you know. Uh-huh. The non-transgressive part of it is that the character then killed himself. Yes. You know, um, which is a blueprint left over, a hangover from the Hayes Code, where when they loosened it up and said that you can have gay characters on film, uh, I'd have to go back and look at the wording, but it was basically, you can have them on film as long as they sort of get what's coming to them, you know, as long as there's sort of a moral reinforcement there, and however that was phrased. So there's, I mean, there's... people way more informed about the history of gay cinema than me about um, tracing that from 
Suddenly Last Summer was, I believe, the, the film that, um, that was the first one after that, or like kind of dealt yeah. with that issue. There's one around the same time. He had a, the strange... That character had a pretty bad, <laughs> <laughs> bad demise as well. Yeah, Suddenly Last Summer. There's one, the, the strange one with Ben Gazzara. Also... Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. I haven't seen that. Seen... So th- this, this gentleman, John Howard, um, a professor in England, wrote this great essay where he interviewed... Um, queer men from Mississippi who were young men at the time the film came out for how it, you know, what it, how they responded to it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, double-edged sword. Some say, well, it was the first time that I saw a representation of myself and my desires and found that validating, like you're not totally alone in the world and this is a thing. Yeah. Um, and one that I quote in the book told him, well, that's great, but he killed himself. Like, what does that mean? You know? Um, so it's, he, he goes really into depth in, in, in his piece and it's really good. I recommend it. I had a friend who uh, was traveling across country and was gay and found some sort of gay bar guide of the South. And he really traveled from small town to small town and, and, uh, hit all these gay bars all across the country. Around what year? To be ninety five or so, oh, I think okay. maybe. But mm-hmm. uh, it was, he had a real fascinating story to tell about sort of small town gay life and the, and the people yeah. he met there. Yeah. Well, and Bobby Gentry certainly wouldn't have done anything that was in purposefully insensitive or negative for her gay audience. She had a massive gay audience, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, I, in when she was in Vegas, um, there were like parties where boys dressed up like Bobby, like masquerade balls, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was described to me as like a bit Midler type type following, which makes sense because of her, you know, her over the top aesthetic and everything, yeah, yeah. you know, um, being part of it and just being progressive in her own, you know, employees and things like that. So mm-hmm. own practices. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting film for that. It's also interesting because of how openly they talk about abortion, you know, it's, the film takes place in 1953, and when Bobby Lee is presumed to be pregnant, her brother yells at her, you know, just go get it taken care of like I did with my girlfriend. I mean, really, and really, like, they don't say the A word, you know, almost 50 years later, people still have trouble saying it in films, but it's still a big deal when it's, um, you know, portrayed in film. But uh, I checked with a friend of mine who's a historian of abortion and media, as you do, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and she she told me, you know, that it would be it would be typical for there to, there to be a go to provider in the fifties in the South, like everywhere. Um, it would just be you know safety and all that being a being another story, you know. Yeah. But uh, I was really taken aback watching. I mean, you don't like it's a you know right right now it's a very special episode if there's anything <laughs> like. Yeah. Yes, I was surprised. I mean, I, I, I had, it sort of left my mind, I guess, a bit. But then, uh, I mean, 10 years ago, I was reading an article that was pointing out that uh, just how gingerly abortion was, was, was still treated in, in television. And, and Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't seen Obvious Child yet, so that's, you know, has abortion as a storyline. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's one in three American women, and it's just completely, almost completely not acknowledged in pop culture. Yeah. 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 Juno, you know, that's fun fact, we're in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Juno is uh, one of Rick Santorum's favorite films. Really? Yeah, he, he would cite Juno as the reason for promoting mandatory ultrasound. <laughs> 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 and 
And I always love that because I'm like, so Rick Santorum cites the screenplay by a feminist former, you know, Stripper, dancer. dancer. Yeah, like, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> every study on Earth shows that ultrasounds do not inform women. I mean, women know what they're doing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating turn of abortion pop culture that Rick Santorum cites Juno for yeah, I was crappy even, policy. Even knocked up, it was, it was uh, mm-hmm. never talked about seriously that, that, that well, like we shouldn't be surprised nothing's talked seriously about knocked up. Well, but, right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised how off the table it sort of is in, in, in yeah. the American film. And like, yeah. Still highly stigmatized, which is why I was so, you know, taken aback. she really appeared you said maybe it was the Johnny Carson show in 78 was that what I remember no that's the last big big network appearance uh-huh. um, Johnny wasn't even there and it was Christmas uh, who was there oh, his name keeps John Davidson yeah, yeah that's incredible very bland easy to easy to forget he forgets I, I <laughs> contacted John Davidson I'm even very he finds thorough his career in my uh, <laughs> my report I was shocked to see <laughs> You know, a website, and he tours and does, you know, plays and whatever. And there was some sort of glittery suit happening, and he was very kind and answered my my questions. But he uh, he didn't he didn't remember it. Uh, so after that, she still appeared here and there. On the, uh, she was in demand to for award shows. You know, so it was eighty or eighty one. She was on like you know the country award shows and gives Willie Nelson Entertainer of the Year. Um, I, so think thing, I remember saying that. I yeah. remember the last time saying her thing on an award show. Yeah, things like that. Um, she was always talked about. She, the, the, the people always sort of treated her like it was a special thing. Bobby Gentry's here in a way. She was. She did. I seem to remember people sort of like oh, nodding yeah. to respect her. Is it, yeah. 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 I think so. So both she did both country award shows often, and then in '81 she did this. Um, NBC All-Star Mother's Day salute type of variety show where she sang a song, you know, with her mother in the audience, Uh Mama Rainbow. And uh, so then, yeah, just a couple more small appearances on award shows. And the last I found, though, in terms of her, her actual performances was she had a Vegas performance scheduled in 83, mentioned in Variety, with Mac Davis that she canceled, which is mysterious because she was you know she was like a work a self-declared workaholic and she did two mm-hmm. shows a night forever you know and that was the last i saw of a show and then this is crazy in like the getty it's not getty but it's one of the the photo archives um the last time she appeared at some sort of a public event where she was photographed was in 85 and that was with david guest just guest liza minnelli's ex-husband oh yeah oh yeah yeah how strange. One of the first. <laughs> yeah. 
adding to the mystery. <laughs> right. Well, that was my era. My super, I should say. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say pretty early 80s with a few one-offs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. There was no line in the sand. There was no farewell show. Uh, folks that saw her personally and spent time with her in the mid-80s don't recall now hanging out with her with the knowledge of that it was a secret of some kind or you were supposed yeah, to be, yeah. you know, quiet about it or that she had retired and she was actively working on all these projects, you know. Um, yeah. And then it was like 10 years passed and then they're like, oh, I guess she hasn't, you know, um, been out and about. So, so yeah, you, a classic fade. Yeah, yeah, your, your, mm-hmm. book, your book sort of comes over this whole mystery. Um, of her disappearance? Of her disappearance a little bit, yeah. I mean, it, it, what what do you what would you think she's doing? I think that she's why still, why do you think she quit? Well, I mean, you know, it's that's a parlor game at best. I, I mean, I, I, I that's was, what we're here. For. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't say I comb over it, but uh, you know, I, not that you com- I don't mean you comb over it, but you 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 hash it out or you explore it is what I'm really yeah. Trying to I mean, at. I yeah. talked to other people and the people that worked with her to get their their opinions. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's some people think that she, in retrospect, they believe that she always planned it that way, that mm-hmm. she always thought that she would do that, and then just the time came, you know. But there's a tension there because she did love to perform, you know, and she had showbiz in her blood, as they say, and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. and they were like, showbiz, I mean, even in her fan club letters, um, she had a big fan club for a long time and wrote the letters. She would talk about how much she loved show business and it was her life and her friends were in show business, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there's that tension between that and wanting to live a private life. You know, so it's all these kind of tension points, and I don't know what the tipping point was, but she did have her child in 79. Mm-hmm. Um, Vegas sort of changing, having a kid, breaking up. You know, her and Jim Stafford were breaking up, so mm-hmm. kind of dealing with that. I think, honestly, I, I think that she decided to take some time off and think about her next direction, which she had always wanted to be directing television and films and producing television and films, and was working on some other things. And then I think a little bit of time passed, and when it was time to go back to work, she just realized, you know, probably examined her motivation and realized it just wasn't worth it at that point. And that you might as well be totally private than sort of be, you know, half sort of half in. I mean, she was all in. Like, when she was <laughs> when she was in, she was writing, composing, producing, designing the costumes, sewing them in some cases, working with the choreographer on the dance moves, you know. So I, I think she just realized she was all in or all out and that she was at a point in her life, being in her early 40s at that point, mom. Yeah, that could really change people as well. That she definitely would be not the time... It definitely didn't make sense to embark on some whole other um, gig that entailed six hours of performing in high heels, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't, uh, maybe she tried to broker some deals to break into film and, and it just didn't happen. I mean, I know she did. I know she had, had talked um, talked with uh, an estate to get the rights to uh, the Divine Sarah, a biography of Sarah Bernhardt. Mm-hmm. And she had uh, a source told me that she co-wrote a screenplay for Fancy and that Warner Brothers, who did Ode to Billy Joe, was interested in that. She had some songs in the can at Warner Brothers that never came out as an album. They came out um, just scattered across other compilations and stuff. 
So yeah, I think I think that I think she took a break to to re-examine and then concluded, maybe to her own surprise, that that it made more sense to um, to just bow out, you know. But I don't believe that she stopped making art. I mean, that doesn't make sense for somebody that's been making art from the time they were 12 years old, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so she paints. She's this incredible painter. Uh, she painted, it's assumed she painted the, the covers to Fancy and Patchwork, which are self-portraits. Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because in the novelization, which has all these allusions based on interviews that Herman did with, with her, you know, about her childhood and stuff, the, the character, I think the character paints or she's looking at paintings and it's, there's a painting that's not signed and the character observes that makes it all the more cool and mysterious, you know, <laughs> so there are these unsigned paintings. Uh, but I've heard rumors through people, you know, the, I've inherited the rumors that the small group of people, you know, um, pay attention to this stuff do, which is that she's painted and had exhibits under another name, that she's written songs that have been produced for other artists under another name. There's a belief that she's played bass uh, in some sessions wow. <laughs> in L.A. <laughs> um, you know, and then there's the glimmers of wanted, her wanting to collaborate, like calling Jimmy Haskell, who did the strings on Odes, as that she called him up in the 90s, um, and mm -hmm. then didn't respond, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I think it's a matter of, like I said, a matter of kind of carefully calibrated tensions, and it just fell on the side of all or nothing. And she saw that, I mean, why would you? Why would you want to be famous today, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like a horror show. Um, but I wonder, I mean, of course I wonder if she just has a straight, 100% conviction line in the sand that she never wants to do anything public or, you know, um, or even comment on her legacy or anything, or if it's a, if she goes back and forth. No. You know, she's also a crazy good golfer and always has been. So she's off golfing somewhere, and what? <laughs> you know, she has things to do. She has yeah. things to do. At one point, know. she was thought to be living in the in the islands off of North Carolina or off that? Georgia. Off of Georgia, yeah. Yeah, Getaway, yeah. Skidway or Skidaway Island, and she. There's like a newsletter that wouldn't have been on the internet at the time, but surfaced on the internet and just the way that, not passed around Bobby fans, but just in the way that things are archived now of, yeah, of, a, of Bobby Gentry hosting a, hosting a benefit for the Women's Symphony of Atlanta or whatever it is, something wow. in Georgia. And yeah. So that's, that's what's strange is she's not, a, I, would, I would not guess, she doesn't appear, it seemed to me to be a recluse, you know, in some dramatic fashion, just... Yeah, somebody who fired her PR agent. Super low-key and... <laughs> you know, has an inner circle of really loyal, I, I mean, I know that. I would call people that worked with her and, you know, after talking to me for a couple minutes and then going, wait, you're not working for Bobby? You're just doing this? And not knowing if I was, you know, being, uh, not having goodwill or something, you know, yeah. doing something out of bad faith. Would be like, one, one guy was like, well, I'm saying right now that, you know, I will sue you if you breathe my name in this book, you know. It's like, you said she you admired her talent and, you know, so yeah. it's not like he had said anything off color or something, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I mean, she, I don't know, that's, that's my theory. I don't think that there was a big hidden scandal or anything like that. So if we did pick some songs for you to... Uh to play on the air, what would you? What what songs would you would you pick? Okay, well we'll start with Fancy. Fancy. Talk about that Fancy. So Fancy is off her Muscle Shoals record, produced by Rick Hall, and that's the kind of probably I'd say second most 
known in the U.S. anyway. Probably was Bobby that her second biggest hit? I mean, I think even chart-wise. I think so. Yeah, not in the U.K. There was that was a whole different thing. But um, well, so tell the tell the story of Fancy. So Fancy is from the point of view of an 18-year-old girl just turned 18, and lives with her mother, and uh, her mother implores her that she has to go, you know, it's on her to save the family because the baby's going to starve to death, you know. <laughs> and Papa, Papa's gone, is that what you're Yeah, thinking? yeah, uh, I think it's because Papa's run off or, you yeah. know. Um, and so she puts her in this now iconic red, red gown, red dress, and the girl looks at herself in the mirror and sees a half-grown woman where a girl once stood, you oh, yeah. know. And she doesn't quite know, she's so naive, she doesn't quite know what her mother's implying. And the famous line is that, um, you know, she says, well, Mama, what do I do? She said, just be nice to the gentleman, Fancy, and they'll be nice to you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's pressure on the daughter. It's here's your one I mean, chance, that, Fancy, no That sounds like direct prostitution, like there's a man waiting outside the door. Yeah, like. oh, yeah. No, it's <laughs> not It's not very veiled. I mean, yeah. that's, it was very, I mean, that's pretty scandalous. Um, uh-huh. And to be, and the it goes on where the character, um, Fancy, says that she doesn't see the point in hanging her head in shame for the rest of her life. And so, well, she she is nice to the gentlemen, and they're nice to her, and she winds up in a Georgia man pouring tea for some diplomat in a Georgia mansion. She thinks she's done pretty well, she, she does say so. Well, for, she goes, and I ain't done bad. <laughs> yeah, and when she performs it on stage, she's always in the dress and a boa type thing, and she throw, right before I ain't done bad, she throws the scarf over her and goes, and I ain't done bad. And then she does this really elaborate strut thing that goes back and forth. And it's super defiant, you know? Um, yeah, just refusing to be shamed for what you do. And yeah. So talking with people who knew her at the time that that came out, they said, oh, yeah, I mean, it caused, like, scant people, of course, going back to what we were saying about people thinking everything's super confessional. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I didn't know if she was confessing having been a prostitute or... <laughs> Um, it does sound though, though it sounds. It, it, you can imagine that scene with the, the mother and daughter both being performers, and the do- and the mother yeah. teaching her how to sort of sex it up a little bit or whatever. You know, yeah. like it, it, yeah. it, 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 you almost can put it into her, her, her like, psyche there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see it as a metaphor for the music industry or a metaphor for the entertainment business. You know, yeah. however, I don't, you know, quite literal, but. Um, yeah, and so it's interesting because she always said that um, she didn't wasn't interested in writing protest songs, even though you know she's writing in the late '60s, and she didn't express her politics in her music. It was art, yeah. and then later on in that same interview where she talked about how she actually produced "Ode to Billy Joe," she said that "Fancy" is her statement, her strongest statement for women's lib. If you really listen to it, and then said that she believes in. You know, went on to itemize. She believes in abortion rights and child care and equal pay and all these things, which is the only interview or evidence that I've seen of her talking politically like that. What year would that you know, be? Seventy-four. Seventy-four. That might have been the you know a real point where all that stuff was really on the front burner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But even coming out, connecting fancy. Yeah, yeah. At sixty-seven, that. she wouldn't be right. saying that and then be working in Nashville. But maybe by seventy-four, you know. Right. Well, and I also think she just didn't give a shit by 74 because it was like she was building her own thing in Vegas where you didn't have to embody the character and persona that the record industry, you know, that the label made for you, you know. Um, And it's really funny. I mean, as far as the persona goes, you know, some of the headlines, I think I wrote my favorite one was, you know, uh, Bobby Gentry, not, not the hillbilly you'd expect. 
And then, then it itemized her measurements. You know, it said if it, if it, uh, if it wasn't for her, you know, because for something like because of her Miss America measurements, you know, you might even think uh, something about how she couldn't be an intellectual because of her Miss America um, measurements. You know, which she directly addresses in that interview, not that particular comment, but she says. Um, you know, a big problem is that beauty is supposed to negate intelligence, and that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And that's like the one thing people that worked with her right away, they were like, like, she's smarter than me, man, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, I did see there was one, the, uh, they admitted that some of the, the, the guys in the session might have got a little, uh, you know, ruffled about her, you know, telling them what to do. Yeah, the, that's Roger Douglas, who yeah. was her band leader in Vegas for five years. Yeah. Um, so he was the, the liaison between, you know, the boss lady and the, and the guys in the band. Um, and she would hire, like, rock bands from all over the country. So they were, the quartet of the rock band were used to just being a rock band, you know. So it's yeah, a different yeah. thing than being a stage show, you know. And he said how he'd have to kind of go back and forth, you know. And he's like, because they're dudes and dudes with the guitars and mustaches and egos. And they're like, you know, uh-huh. and she's little. Like uh-huh. Madonna and other peop- big performers like that, you, they look big, but she's yeah, like yeah. teeny, a teeny woman on these big, big heels, you know. Yeah, I met Madonna once, and I was, you did. Yeah, surprised Easy. to find her to be this you know tiny little Italian lady. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bizarre. <laughs> Even um, Donald Bradburn, her longtime choreographer, told me that he only saw her saw Bobby once out of kind of out of her gear, you know. Yeah. And um, they were good friends. And even he, like you're saying with Madonna, he, you know, she opened the door and he was like, oh, it's this small woman with no makeup on and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So she, uh, she usually had her, her game face on. Here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. Here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. Lord, forgive me for what I do, please. But if you want out, well, it's up to you. Now, don't let me down. Your mom's going to help you move up town. Kiss my cheek, and I saw the tears well up in her troubled eyes when she started to speak. She looked at a pitiful shack, and then she looked at me and took a ragged breath. Your paws run off, and I'm real sick, and the baby's gonna starve to death. She handed me a heart shaped locket that said to thine own self be true, and I shivered as I watched a roach crawl across the toe of my high heel shoe. It sounded like somebody else that was talking, asking, Mama, what do I do? Just be nice to the gentleman, Fancy, and they'll be nice to you. Here's your one chance, Fancy, don't let me down. Here's your one chance, Fancy, don't let me down. Lord, forgive me for what I do, but if you want out, well, it's up to you. Now get on now, girl, you better start moving uptown. Mississippi Delta is really the same question of yeah. how can you be a feminist because you shake your ass. Like you haven't noticed Beyonce exuding power at any point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's like because you, right, She's all she's doing is catering to the male gaze. Right, yeah. you're brilliant. Um, <laughs> you know, which she answered with the big illuminated word. And, um, you know, the... What's the she used the word feminist? Is this, yeah, there was, on an award show, she stood and performed one of her songs, which has a poet talking about young girls being feminists and a giant illuminated sign saying feminist behind her. It was a pop culture moment. Uh, Less than a year ago. I think it was VMAs. And then just 
two weeks ago maybe, there was a big article in Pitchfork about Bjork talking about when she, you know, for producer credit on her albums, uh, someone, a friend of hers advised her to, uh, everyone kept not mentioning that she was a co-producer or just crediting the guy and that she worked with. I don't know my Bjork so well, but Bjork on Bjork, you know, like <laughs> be out there. Um, and it was recommended, well, you need to take a picture of yourself with the, in front of the equipment to like try to get people. So I mean, this is literally almost 50 years later and it's just the same, this SOS, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I think, I think she made, I think Bobby made some really good headway in fighting back in, right, in that, the way she was able to. The only person I could really think of of her time, maybe a little later, was, was Dolly Parton. Yeah. Was, was, was writing a lot of her material, I know. Uh, yeah. Not Loretta Lynn yeah. writing her material? Writing, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I actually did, I actually did lay out in for my own research a timeline of Dolly, Loretta, Bobby, you know, uh-huh. for that. But, but, but they weren't, they weren't producing, yeah. you know, that's for sure. They were writing. Dolly has a song that's so an ode to Ode to Billy Joe from 1968 called The Bridge. And she sits and it's finger plucked and plays it on an acoustic and it's uh-huh. about a pregnancy and a bridge, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's <laughs> certainly. I tried to. I contacted some Dolly writers that have written about Dolly in the past to get their take. They, it just never came up for some reason, oh, you know. Yeah. I was at an event where Jerry Stiller was there and he. Uh, I mentioned Bobby Gentry to Jerry Stiller. When I was like in the research, it was like everywhere. You're like, I wonder if that guy knows Bobby Gentry, you know. He was like, oh yeah, me and my wife had dinner with her. Lovely woman, lovely woman, in Vegas years ago, you know. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. other character songs that I found really interesting like Beverly and you know one of the characters uh, works in a factory dreaming of the girl she used to be um, thinking about when she used to be a young girl and get, get to go dancing and now her life's reduced to making you know reduced to get her salary yeah. like a lot of like working class kind of working class characters you know and all real women. female portraits too I mean certainly, yeah. certainly eliminating a side of women that yeah. Wasn't frequently heard in the radio. Uh-huh. Then I'd say looking in because it's so mind-blowingly actually nakedly autobiographical. Um, and again, that's the last song off of Patchwork. So it's the last song off of her last album. And, you know, I quote it a lot in the book because it's, you know, her saying she can't bring herself to compromise. 
she's trying she's trying to write and she's in a limo on her way to the show and she has sort of a premonition that her song's going to come on the radio and it does but they can't get to the show because it's traffic it's just this very like gridlock meta you know pensive thing and she gets to the hotel and wants to all she wants to do is lay down because she needs a little peace of mind but ellie's on the other line and there's another stack of papers to sign you know um so she's just going to keep going around and uh trying to think up think up new ways to do the same old thing i mean it's just a very stark meditation on being over showbiz you know um or at least that version of it Laying in my hotel room Wanting to be alone Needing the time to rest my mind But they bring in another stack of papers to sign And L.A.'s waiting on the other One positive uh, development I'd heard, uh, somebody was uh, a high school teacher and was talking about the, the, the musical kids in his school, and he said that there's a, you know, probably 10 or 15 bands that are made up of people in that school and that, that mm-hmm. all of them are mixed gender. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that, you know, that generation has somehow welcomed women into the, onto the stage yeah. with, with, with men. Yeah, I mean, you know, people that put all of their time into studying this kind of thing and, you know, uh, write about, you know, women are in the top ten pop now, you know, more more women than men. And yeah. I mean, we don't need another year of the woman, you know. But mm. <laughs> <laughs> but specifically with producing, you know, that was Bjork's point, and specifically with producing and the, the tech stuff, it's just still pretty bad. I mean, there was a huge article in, uh, I think it was Nashville Scene just not long ago, a year ago, talking about how, like, less than... You know, less than two percent of women are producers. Yeah, Which film directors uh, came out last week. Yeah, seventeen percent, I think. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. I, I talked to one female producer who shall remain unnamed, who talked about how she was really like, "I'm going to do this, and I want to do rock and country, and you know, mainstream," because um, now she does some other more esoteric stuff, and she said the. She's like, it wasn't, you know, no, it's not that anyone tells you you can't, but in her, her personal experience was that the guys were doing blow and watching porn, like, in the, she's like, I just, you know, just wasn't into it, you know. Yeah. So, it's, it's active and passive ways of exclusion, you know. Yeah, it was, uh, it was um, I think it was the woman who directed Punisher Warzone. Mm-hmm. It was a Russian-American woman who directed that, and she talked about that, uh, even though that she was the director and people were very respectful to her, she found out that there were ball games that all the guys were going to from the cat from the crew oh, yeah. that she wasn't invited to, and like yeah. they, that she they somehow could not incorporate her into their guy behavior. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's it pervades, you know. I mean, but my. I mean, certainly in journalism, there's the journo bro, the dreaded journo bro, and Ooh. he usually throws a cape on, and you know, the, the typical journo bro in my mind, if I was going to draw the cartoon character, <laughs> uh, is a you know middle class white guy journalist 
who goes out of his way to um, expound against rape, but I'm sorry, expound against racism, but doesn't really center voices of people of color, just sort of like speak for them, you know, a, an anointed uh, spokesperson. Yeah, yeah. Apparent to the total bewilderment of actual people of color. Like, why are you, you know, the, and I'm picturing there's sort of a spiritual bow tie. Probably, it's probably a hoodie that I see as a spiritual bow tie, right? Very brand new, crisp hoodie. Um, you know, but, but, but subtly reinforce sexism. And it's just, it's, it's in, like, in ways like, it's just kind of funny. Um, blowing up other Journo Bros stories but not, you don't really see them recommending female journalist stories as much. You know, I mean, I didn't, like, run the numbers and get the abacus out and everything, yeah, but yeah. this is just, like, kind of observations. But these are um, things you know from the experiences you've had. Yeah, and, you know, uh, a very typical um, example is that story. There's a famous story, a notorious story that came out about a year ago called Dr. V and the Magic Putter. Were you mm. aware of that? No. So in the story, it's... It's a. It's written by a very promising. Everyone wants to like much potential young man. Um, and the story starts out being about this magic golf putter that's supposed to be amazing golf, whatever. And along the way, the creator of the golf putter, it comes to light, is trans. Is a trans woman, yeah. transgender woman. From the beginning, the the deal with the writer and the um, so the writer, a typical journal will write himself into the story unnecessarily because they're always cast as the hero with a giant magnifying glass. They're gonna hit the bottom of this, you know. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I'm telling you, like the this is like a usual living room talk for me, but I'm finding it amusing. Um, from punchy next late. But I've spent too much time rehashing this particular story. But long story short, one of the deals was that the the creator of the Potter said, you know, we'll do this story, but it's not about me. It's about the thing, you know. Uh-huh. And this this story has been endlessly debated. So you know, um, but I recall reading it, and in the story, then the he the writer finds out that the that it's a transgender woman, the creator. Um, and describes emailing the person basically saying i'm going to press with this and this is part of the story now and you know and the 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 putter inventor killed herself before the story came out and now there is no one reason for suicide this is you know Mm -hmm. in trauma journalism you don't there's nothing there's not one factor it's always a constellation of events i need to be responsible and say that but in terms of the ethics of the story, that's then subsumed, cannibalized into the story as like a big, you know, uh, pivotal climax of the story. Like, oh my gosh, you know, like, uh, like a, I kept trying to think of it, like crying game type of thing. Yeah. And then the story ends. And I read it and was horrified, you know. It's like, oh my, this is terrible. Like, it's a story of a transgender woman who was basically stalked and threatened with publicity you know um and she killed herself and must have had other things going on and now this is like the story you know yeah yeah. and i you know exploded on social media the story and it was a huge gender divide a lot of even male writers that i really respect um tid uh Tweeted like, oh my god, it's riveting stories, fascinating turn of events. It's like this is someone's life. Someone died, you know. Um, so just things like that. And that, me and another writer friend, we're we're talking about. That's like kind of the the ultimate 
libro story, yeah. you yeah. know, just like, wow, you know, just very, it typified, it, it typified all the worst tendencies of some, you know, casual sexism or somethingism, not getting it-ism uh, <laughs> in, in journalism, but. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I take it for granted that people, you know, the journalists are, yeah, I have some romantic Aww, notion that they're so like they're uh, you know scholarly, worldly people that have met all sorts of people and know and have this knowledge uh, across all sorts of experiences, and then like yeah. you just hear the sort of conservative suburban. Well, and again, <laughs> sort it's of, just it's, it's a strain, you know, it's a yeah. strain I'm personally pretty fascinated with, um, <laughs> and and that's not to say you know like it being. A female anything artist or writer makes you inherently more anything you know yeah, being yeah. like biologically reductionist about it but not having had you have had you have another dimension of experience that has only been explained to you know to people who haven't experienced it so yeah. you know um and same thing with you know it's across every intersection of 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 what you're coming with you know yeah but um but anyway that's all that to say is that no i don't think that there's you know a varnished table with the villainous meetings, but it just operates in all of these in in these ways, you know. And with with art, it's about it, there really is a there really is something to be said for who you what stories you post, what um, if you're the writer, who you quote. Journalism has been in such a such a whirlwind in the last ten or fifteen years. Uh, I didn't become a journalist until about ten years ago. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, late to the game. What 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 brought you to journalism? What made that a decision? It was for a total you? surprise. I didn't go to J school. You know, um, I was super liberal arts undergrad person. If you ever want to talk about medical anthropology, or <laughs> I, I graduated with like medical anthropology, philosophy, and women's studies. Um, you teach journalism. I thought for sure you must be I a do. journalism student. No, you know, there's a whole thing. Um, there is a whole thing where people who I find in my personal life at, at around my age, anyway, maybe it's different now, but a lot of journalists didn't go to J school. A lot of working journalists, uh, and a lot of people that did go to J school are not journalists. Hmm. You know, so I find that to be. My husband went to J school, and he's not a journalist. Hmm. You know, so I got to. He's like, oh, you're living out my. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, uh, he had an internship at the Enquirer 20 years ago or something, and Bill Marimo himself was like, ah, you probably have to work really hard. You know, he has this like letter from Bill Marimo that's hilarious because it's Bill Marimo who was not yet Bill Marimo, you know, like dissuading him from journalism. <laughs> not, not out of it, an it sucks way, which is what you say now to people, but out of, yeah. um, out of like, you know, you don't seem like you really want to do the 80 hours a week for $2 an hour thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't. He was like, you're right. I don't want to do that. Um, well, I've heard a lot of people t now talk about the, the route is to to learn another subject well and then, you know, start journalism from that angle, kind of. Oh, yeah. It's just a different, um, there's all different paths. I mean, I, I, when I do, t you know, when I'm teaching, I tell my students they have a better chance of getting a great job than someone, you know, than a 38-year-old with 10 years experience that, that is not native to the all the digital stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm, like, I'm like, we're looking to you to solve the problem, <laughs> you know. And it's true. If you, you know, go in native multimedia and all that kind of stuff, I mean, you're, you're much better off, um, I think, than, than sort of being middle of the road where, you know, you have friends that are 
I have friends that are extremely talented and extremely, you know, lots of accolades and all kind of vying for the same handful of crappily paid, overworked jobs, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so it depends where you are. I mean, I'm not in New York or D.C. or Oakland, so there's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm in not New York, Adelphia, so uh-huh. it's a different thing. Um, but yeah, no, so it was an accident. I, uh, I was doing, you know, like writing, corporate writing kind of stuff, healthcare stuff. I've always been really attracted to healthcare issues and went back to grad school for a master's in writing, but not journalism per se, like feature feature writing. Yeah. And one of my professors was very cool and really liked one of my things that I did for class and introduced me to an editor of the paper, the Courier Post in South Jersey. And, sure. Um, and then, so my first story was like a Sunday cover arts thing. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, I never thought, of course, I thought about like essays and journals. And yeah. What, what was your, what was your first like, story on the like cover? Things like that, there? you know. That one, actually, that was the second thing I published. That was 2004, maybe. So it was the renaissance of roller derby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I used it as an inter- excuse to interview um, Camille uh, Pelia. Oh, really? Yeah. She basically just told me how Raquel, first of all, I had to interview her by fax. Yeah. Facts. Facts. And, 2004. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> And she basically just, you know, was like, it's a symbol of the, you know, it's the, the jibber jabber. But um, she mentioned Raquel Welch. Is that what you're going to say? But Raquel Welch, but Kansas expressed City how Bomber. hot Raquel Welch was in Kansas City Bomber. I'm like, this is, this is probably the only true thing she said. <laughs> I'd say one of the only. Anyway, um, so yeah, I never thought about newspapers or journalism. I thought of journalism as like the daily, like, you know, the Lois Lane thing, the daily going out and I um yeah. I wasn't really interested in in like daily news that way meaning I just wasn't like a news junkie or anything like that yeah you know? very issue issue oriented you've written a lot about policy real specific policy yeah I've gravitated more and more to being I'm really interested in policy now gun um, policy in particular mm-hmm. and women's reproductive rights and yeah I resisted all that and it's kind of funny because I had um, I won a scholarship in college for public policy and went to D.C. and I felt like sort of the undercover person because I was like, oh, I just wanted to check it out, but I'm not. And I went to like White House, the executive house events and mm-hmm. met like Geraldine Ferraro and Betty Friedan at cocktail parties with cubes of cheese and stuff. And I was like, ha, 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 I'm infiltrating this thing. And then did a giant loop through pop culture back to policy basically. But um, uh, so anyway, I started getting published in papers and I was like I never thought of newspapers as outlets for features you know for like two and three thousand word features and Mm -hmm. so that's kind of it satisfied my advocate streak and my creative streak and sort of married them and I'd never thought about that before so um yeah and then I found that I liked it quite a bit (laughs) yeah Yeah. you you wrote some award-winning work on was it the 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 abortion doctor uh Mm mm-hmm yeah. So what's his name again? Kermit Gosnell. Gosnell, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah when that went down, um, so I was really lucky because I, I, yeah, I wasn't on a beat. I was writing features, and I could, you know, I chose my own stories. Can you um, summarize the Gosnell story quickly? Yeah, for... Gos- Kermit Gosnell is, uh, uh, is uh, still living uh, properly in, in jail, <laughs> um, but he was a doctor in West Philadelphia in a, in a neighborhood called Mantua. Yeah that suffers from such intergenerational deep poverty that it was selected as one of 10, I think, 
zones by the federal government as getting grants just to try to make it not die entirely. And it's, it's walking distance from Penn and Drexel, so it's this really weird spot of, you know, like I said, deep, deep poverty just a few blocks from, like, you know, multi-million girls in sweatpants and flip-flops and, you know, students paying lots and lots and lots of money. Um, so anyway, he ran a, uh, a clinic that was both a, like, family health type of clinic and uh, performed abortions, but he performed, <laughs> it turned out that he wound up, uh, it's such a long story, I'm like, how do I summarize it? The, he was also a uh, avid drug trafficker and one of the biggest pill mills in the Northeast. So what happened is the, uh, DEA, the DEA kicked down the doors and did a raid expecting to find drugs and fake scripts and things like that, which they did, but they also found um, women lying on the floor bleeding and just filthy medical equipment. And it turned out that he was performing illegal abortions, um, not anything close to what medical protocol is. He had this whole system that exploited um, his patient's poverty in that literally the more money you had, the more, it was a chart like handwritten in Sharpie by a high school student that worked there um, about how much money you paid for how much painkiller you got. And he did this really gruesome process that was, like I said, nothing, you know, and later, women, later term, uh, you know, illegal abortions. Um, And then he wound up getting, of course, arrested. Um, and so that that situation subsumed the later on the federal charge. By the time he, by the time he got convicted of the the federal pill mill charges, it was like, oh right, that too. Yeah. Um, so there was a grand jury report that itemized his activities uh, or the allegations at the time. And as soon as I I saw that, I was just like, oh my god, and knew. I reported on, you know, what would be called women's issues that I would arguably say are just societal issues that <laughs> affect women. Um, but that, I think, you know, really um, kind of, I had a more national following about specifically that issue um, yeah. because of reporting on that. So I did a big story talking about the way that that story was going to be, uh, the narrative was going to be used as an excuse to pass um, anti-choice abortion restrictions, which in reality make outlier row practitioners like him more likely to happen yeah. because it makes it more, uh, difficult, to get an more difficult specifically for working and poor women to get an abortion um, because it brings up the cost by closing them down and you know drains them of, um, of money just to like widen elevators and things like that. So, so I wrote that and it was, you know, I wrote it really it was a gruesome story. I mean, there's no. I, 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 I've always felt politically, I guess, that that there was very little point in sanitizing that kind of thing. I mean, people need to know why become a journalist if you want to. <laughs> it's like my job isn't to filter reality for people. Yeah. It's to it's to to explain it, you know, and to to showcase. Journalism. And yet, I, I know I, I had the you know having my own political leanings. I had the feeling as I was looking at the story, like, oh, I really wish the story wasn't being reported because. I knew the bigger the story was, the more it was going to be used in this anti-abortion right. way. Right, but that's the thing. It didn't need the media to um, 
Yeah, I know. See, I disagree. Um, I know, I, I, no, I understand what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't saying that it really shouldn't be a, a, no, reported. No, I it was the emotional feeling of seeing it, like, oh. Yeah, sure. I know what, you well, know. that's. The, I mean, we're in an age of the representational narrative, you yeah, know. Yeah. And um, whenever there's, you know, these 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 stories that go viral, there's always, you know, I'm, I'm very, I've become really fascinated with like the power and the danger of the representational narrative, you yeah. know. When there's a cop shooting, then it becomes like this person has to be the perfect victim. And so, quote, the other side goes looking for reasons why they're an imperfect victim. And then, yeah. you know, and it just goes on and on. But um, but it played out exactly as as advocates and people like yourself feared. <laughs> um, and Pennsylvania passed passed really strict. Um, uh, strict isn't the right word. They they forced clinics to. Uh, to function as ambulatory surgical centers, despite being not as medical, you know, uh, early uh -huh. stage abortion not being a complicated medical procedure. Yeah. So that required, you know, so that, that went on. And then went across the country, and I, I wrote a chapter that was um, put into an anthology that was about the ripple effect of the Gosnell case and how it was used across the country. And yeah. I've had a Gmail alert of Kermit Gosnell since then, for the last mm -hmm. four years or so. And sure enough, if Utah wants to pass some, you know, not scientifically based uh, restriction within the first 10, 10 yeah. words on the floor, you know, he's the patron saint now. It's like, let me tell you about an abortion clinic. Yeah. And then they yeah. use that as an example. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I actually went to a meeting in a um, church basement in the suburbs of Philadelphia with, were held by Operation Rescue uh, shortly after, after the Gaznell case broke. <clears throat> And I mean the powerhouse Operation Rescue people were there, and uh, talking about talking about Gosnell and and going this is this is an opportunity people this is your opportunity from God and like it's a really odd world where someone like Kermit Gosnell is your this is opportunity the, yeah. you know but it was blatant you know very strategic communications on 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 their part. Um, you know, as was the, you know, which I've written about at length, as was the false allegation that there was some sort of liberal media yeah. blackout. You're like, I, that was so frustrating because you're like, Google, just go to Google. It's right. Like, call my parents. They never accused me of not being a liberal, uh, <laughs> the liberal media, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, to bring it all back together, it's kind of interesting because I, I became... I developed a reputation as, I mean, I've written about everything from, you know, profiling like a musician who transitioned, you know, a transgender musician to the problem with a South Philly house that was hoarding a hundred chihuahuas and how it started out as hundred what? Chihuahuas. Oh, chihuahuas. Yeah, this like hoarding situation that became a neighborhood like, like the gentrifiers versus the old head situation. They were all protecting the They were protecting, even though they didn't agree with the the hundred chihuahuas and painting the windows black and stuff, they were like, but she's our crazy person, you know? Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say crazy that way. Um, but, you know, so anyway, the point being, I've, I've written about really diverse things, you know, profiling Buzz Bissinger and, you know, yeah. like across arts and, and science and stuff. And yet, because I also write about that and write about sexual violence, you know, I'm the, I'm the the women's issues reporter, you know, yeah, so it's just yeah. another way that you're like marginalized. And I've had, I had writer friends go, you're going to get really pigeonholed as just writing about women's issues. I'm like, but again, your Google's your friend. You can see that, I, you know, and I'm, yeah, yeah. It, it's true, you know, so it's like, it's weird. It's supposed to be this like balance of how much you 
you know, I'm like, this is just my interests. Like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm yeah. just writing my interests. So, of course, I don't worry about it, but I've been, it's, I find it kind of fascinating, you know, yeah. that then you're, that's your, that's your thing, you know. Have you written about a lot about guns as well? Is yeah, guns yeah. too. Yeah. Well, that at least is another. That, that's not you know stereotypically a woman's uh, right. issue at least. Yeah, I um I was part of this really great project started by Jim McMillan, the Gun Crisis Reporting Project that uh-huh. started out. I profiled them and then um and then wound up you know kind of coming on board and helping out a little bit. What kind of work do they do? So they recently powered down um, a bit, but what for several years what they were doing was it was mostly um, it was a small team that fluctuated a little bit, but the core core people were um, Jim McMillan, Joe Kazmarak, a photojournalist. Jim McMillan's a, a photojournalist and um, reporter in town, won a Pulitzer reporting in Iraq years ago. Was at the Daily News for a very long time before that, and he has been doing he's always at the forefront of like the mobile journalism thing and online and building experimental websites and things like that. And a photojournalist named Tom Kelly also. Um, so they created a website, um, Jim being more the headquarters guy and Joe being out on the streets every night. And Joe, I mean, Joe is like, you know, now it's become cliche. It was very cutting edge, I think, when, you know, but like Philadelphia is Ouija, you know. He <laughs> drives around um, and with a police radio in his lap and, he responds to scenes and photographs them, with the concept being that like every every murder, <laughs> every homicide is important. Every homicide victim is important, yeah. and it was done. The backdrop to the launch of the project is the shrinking um, and much embattled uh, Philadelphia newspapers. You know, yeah. I mean, there can be, and it's also the idea of each shooting is important. Even you know, we tend to just think of the fatalities. You know, yeah. but you can open up a paper in the morning and it. It's not actually all the activity that went on in yeah. the night, you know. Um, or it's just 24-year-old guy shot in the head, 24-year-old guy shot in the head, you know. Um, so the reporting was, was a bit more personal and, and avid and, you know. Yeah. It was uh, in the, the vein of solutions-oriented journalism. So solutions or solutions journalism is what Jim's about. And also, so it was about profiling the homicides and the gun violence in general, not just the homicides, but also profiling groups and their efforts to curtail it. And the idea being, you know, a balance of coverage, of, of, of reporting on it as the public health problem that it is, mm-hmm. you know, with, with and avoiding being um, partisan at all. It wasn't about gun control and it wasn't about, you know, just gun violence as a public health issue. Yeah. Um, sort of in the tradition of Gary Slutkin's work, um, looking at it as a um, epidemic. He's a yeah, doctor yeah. in Chicago, and The Interrupters, the film, is about mm-hmm. the program started there. Yeah, so for a while I was the abortion, rape, and guns lady, I suppose. <laughs> you had pop, and culture pop culture in there, too. What, 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 what pop culture interest? I know. Well, during those years I was doing a lot of that reporting. I kept the arts and music reporting to, um, I'd say, about one out of every five big stories. Yeah. You know, um, profiling. Where, where, where did your interest lie in that? Um, <clears throat> mostly music. I mean, I started out as a music, with like a music column and a, well, a film column, I guess. Elsewhere years ago. Sorry, my voice is giving out. But um, I really liked I really liked the Buzz Bissinger profile. You know, I like profiles. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly stressful, 
but I like doing them. You know, I mean, I lie awake at night being like, oh my God, because you're going on instinct and, you know, a pretty small window of interviewing someone, you know? Yeah. And I just, at a certain point, stopped worrying about having some, like, like, yeah, I write about 1960s pop starlets and I will be reporting on a hearing in Harrisburg next week. Like, I'm, <laughs> those are my answers. But yeah. yeah, just sort of, that's kind of the cool part, you know? Yeah. Uh, what's going on with the Philadelphia newspapers these days? Oh, I don't know. I've gotten to the point where I'm, I mean, it's its own, I see it as so like cannibalistic, the reporting. It's like reporting on the re- reporting, you know, re- the media reporting on media, reporting on media, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's such a fishbowl community uh-huh. that the whole, like the disclosures that, <laughs> the disclosures <laughs> written and unwritten are hilarious to me, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know even what the latest was. You know, they were sold like six times within the last five yeah. years or something. and. Now there's three new, three new digital, you know, online-based uh, reporting projects. Mm-hmm. I guess um, Philly Voice, Billy Penn, and the Philadelphia Citizen. Though I don't think that one. I think they launched, and I don't think they're active. Yeah. Um, so I, there it seemed like to me like there was. So I start. I took a job that I'm really happy with as a working in strategic communications for Women's Law Project a few months ago. So now <clears throat> I'm but working on the beginning of a project that's going to be online and thinking about maybe maybe a book <laughs> next year, but not for a while. Mm-hmm. And we'll be picking up freelancing again, do a little freelancing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, not being doing the full-time journal thing, I sort of it was so nice to not have to read everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're doing it, you also have to, you're reading it for the news and also reading it for like, who's doing what. And mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so I, I sort of, with great relief, don't, I'm not so tuned into that so much anymore. I guess, I don't know. Um, just like, I'm not really worried about like, defining my path or whatever, you know, just write about what I'm interested in, read about what I'm interested in. And, yeah. yeah. Seems like opportunities come your way too. Yeah, everything's going really well. The um, the book came out in the UK today, oh, so that's cool. Thank you. So there's a piece in the Quietest tomorrow. Um, I'm working on uh, very early stages of development, working on a documentary to go with the book. With the, about Bobby Jones. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, with Ruth Lightman, who is very cool. It started with me tweeting about a film of hers that I saw on Netflix and really liked. Which is like, this was awesome. And then we wound up like DMing and, you know. <laughs> um, she did this, uh, she, do you know the cult movie Wildwood, New Jersey? Yes, I do. She did that. She did that's that? That's her, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a special film. It is. Yeah, I've, only, I've seen like just, the, there's like an 11 minute clip on YouTube or something. Oh, okay. But I've meant for years to send away to that address to get the yeah, full thing. Yeah, you can get the full thing. I have the full thing if you want to borrow it. Uh. Um, <laughs> Not to take a sale from you, but yeah. So she, um, I knew of that movie and I had seen it. And Lipstick and Dynamite was on Netflix. That's the wrestling film, right? Yeah, she oh, did I, that. I didn't realize she did that. Oh, yeah. And I saw that, like you know, Home Alone one night. It was like, this is so cool. Like the aesthetic of it was cool. Just the mission, the whole thing. And um, and she retweeted it, and we just again wound up like DMing in the comments, and and then I just was like, you know what? I don't know. This is crazy, but. You should t- I'm working on this book, and it would be a great documentary, and I just found all this film of Bobby Gentry performing, and, you know, if you've ever thought about it, I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. She was like, someone else just suggested I do a documentary on Bobby Gentry. <laughs> and I was like, it was Jill Solvio. I'm going to get 
And she was like, oh, my God, it was Jill Sokol. <laughs> so I had tapped into, like, this handful of cults, yeah. you know. Yeah, she wrote that song, Bobby, Bobby Gentry, Gentry Devotees. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's why I knew. I had just started talking to Jill. Um, we have a mutual friend, Jim Boja, who's a musician in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Jim knew that Bobby, Jim knew that Jill was a Bobby freak and, you know, he was like, oh, I got to get you guys together, you know. So we went on email and then she, um, we talked a bunch about Bobby Gentry, our mutual geeking out, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then she wrote, she wrote the forward um, because it turns out that seeing Bobby Gentry play guitar, talking about was a big thing for her. representations in media. Yeah, it was a big thing for her. And she was yeah. like, oh, I can do this. She's hilarious. Have you ever seen her live? No, I haven't. Amazing show. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was I knew her catalog a bit, you know, had a couple records, but didn't like understand until I saw her, not understand, but like didn't like I saw her live and was like, oh my god, she is so great, she's such a great entertainer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now we're talking um, and trying to get, and it should happen this spring or early summer, a uh, tribute concert together in L.A. that Jill would help curate. Yeah, she probably has connections to get totally some, some, some help big curate names the performers there, right? and. Yeah. Yeah, we did it at the um, Underground Arts and at XBN's Free at Noon uh-huh. in December for the book launch and Phil D'Agostino. Who was the band put who it together. put together? Was it, didn't they have a name, 40 something? We, yeah, we called it the Lower 40. Lower 40. Yeah, right. yeah. that was all Phil, Phil D'Agostino um, played bass and, and assembled. You know, he his job was to listen to the record and break it down. And, uh-huh. you know, we had charts made and um, Jay Ansel did the string section, sure. which was super cool. Uh-huh. And um, some of the guys from West Philly Orchestra did um, the horns. And it was so great. It was, like, better. It was, like, better than the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I knew it would be good, and everybody in it was good. And, but yeah. it was really special, yeah. So yeah, Great material to work with. Yeah. So yeah. We'd, And Alison Polans sang Ode. Five girls sang different songs, and everybody was awesome. But of course, everyone's like, you know, it's the last song on the album, and it's a bit dramatic because it's the whole thing. She killed it. Yeah, but everybody was super great, so we're hoping to do it again. So I'm busy with all that stuff. That's that's how to work, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I think that's okay. probably a good place to wrap things up, I think. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for talking to me. Geeking out on the Bobby Gentry <laughs> and my various opinions on things. <laughs> One, two, three, four. That's it for our show. Thanks again to Tara for being so friendly and taking time to talk to us. Check out Tara's journalism online. Check out her 33 and a third volume on Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe, available in bookstores and record stores everywhere. Catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be at the Princeton Public Library August 24th at 7 p.m. for a screening of the documentary on Ellington trumpeter Clark Terry, Keep On Keeping On. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.